Thank you all for that uh, warm welcome. As Patrick said, my name is Josh. I'm really excited to see you guys today, especially some of the new folk uh, coming here. Uh, the time away was great. You could call these this message and the one that I'm going to share next week sort of like words from the desert, words from the wilderness, words of hope from there. Or you don't have to call it that. You can just listen to these two talks and hopefully enjoy. But um, I'm going to start with a question. Have any of you guys ever run out of gas while driving? Like the car actually just like stop. Okay, we got one, we got two, three, four. More than I thought. Okay, we have some like maybes. Like it depends on how you define like stalling out everything. Okay, so something to admit. Um, by the grace of God and by sheer dumb luck, that has not happened to me yet. But it's certainly not by careful planning. Like when I see this light, the empty gas light, it's a sign I'm very familiar with. For me, that means I keep going a little bit more. And unfortunately, what that's meant is I've learned something. It's like one of these like weird lessons of life. Like there's the E and you hit the E. And like your car doesn't like magically explode. It doesn't like stop, but like you can actually go under the E. Like this is like a bad lesson to learn because it means like when you haven't hit the E, you're totally fine. When you've hit the E, like you're okay. And then maybe, maybe when you're under, it's starting to like get a little bit scary. But so far, I haven't been stopped. So far, like I haven't stalled out. Um, and that's been like good for me, like maybe. Depends on how you take the message, right? So you can go under empty and actually get away with it, at least for a little while. And the same might be true with these other signs. Um, you know, you've got your check engine, you've got your maintenance required, you've got your tires, you've got a squiggle, you've got another squiggle, you've got a loop, and I, I know what all these mean, like, right? Don't you guys? Um, so you're probably gonna be okay if you see those signs, like, or not, I, I don't know. You can see these warning signs as signs to be followed or signs to be ignored. We can either listen and heed the wisdom of the warning or we can go our own way. Or maybe in the case of running out of gas, like not go our own way, but just like stay. Tina called that a dad joke, I think it is. Um, <laughs> now here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is life, like cars, has its own warning signs. The bad news is we're not that great at recognizing them, at following them. So a few weeks ago, uh, before I took my leave, there was a pretty ordinary scene in my household. It was uh, me and Tina in the kitchen, uh, just hanging out, talking, and then Zoe, our almost two-year-old, she's pictured here. Um, Tina says this is win her winning a war against spaghetti. I think it's her losing a war against spaghetti. You can be the judge, but anyway, that's Zoe. She's super cute. Uh, she was doing her usual laps, you know, going from the kitchen to the dining room to the living room to the entryway to the kitchen to the dining room, so on and so forth. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, there was silence. And if you're a parent or if you spend some time with kids, silence is like a blessed thing, but it also becomes a very worrisome thing after a while. You're like, what is happening? So Tina and I look at each other, and then I'm the one, I'm like, I, I, I choose tribute. I go, I go, I'll go. And so I go and look. I'm expecting maybe Zoe to be standing on the table, maybe like writing like on important legal documents. But no, she's doing something else. Like her hand is all the way down my bag of gummy bear snacks. Emphasize my gummy bear snacks. If you notice, I just emphasized all the words because it was really important to me. Like, they're mine. And so I shout out, no, 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 and then grab them from her. And if you've grabbed something from a toddler, you know you have like a small reward in heaven, right? So it's like, yes, you got it. Like, that usually doesn't happen. But grabbing something from a toddler, it's like precious. And I just went right back into the kitchen. I was like, yes, this is awesome. I'm gonna talk to Tina again. 
Except that there was a new noise, and the noise was Zoe crying. And this wasn't like a regular cry. This was like a different kind of cry. I hadn't heard this cry before. And Tina looks at me. She doesn't know what's happened yet. And she kind of gives me this look. It's like, explain yourself. <laughs> and I think she's maybe thinking, right, like maybe Zoe swallowed a bead and like there's some like life-threatening like choking going on. Maybe Zoe like found a razor on the ground. Maybe Zoe is like doing something that's like really dangerous. And so she's waiting for me to explain. So I have to fess up. Um, she was eating my gummy bear snacks. If looks could kill, this was a bad scene. So as a uh, mother comforted daughter, I realized I hadn't just transferred my love of healthy eating to Zoe by like snatching away the gummy bear snacks, or even like my love for gummy bear snacks. I actually transferred something else, like this kind of like busyness, anxiety, frustration that was in my heart, and that came out as I did almost like the get out like, no, 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 scream at my daughter before she started to like cry and like even like shake a little bit at the sight of her dad. This was not a good time. And that honestly hadn't really happened before. And so I had to look at Zoe, apologize to her, not knowing if she's like understanding these things, but if you hang out with Zoe, she's kind of understanding more and more these days and say I'm sorry. The first one I'm assuming will be like many apologies I'll give my daughter. And I had to also say I'm sorry to Tina that I definitely overreacted that some things going on in my life, in my heart, contributed to how I spoke to my daughter, so much so that she just basically burst out in tears from the tone of my voice. Not my proudest moment. But it wasn't just a moment. The Holy Spirit kind of used that to turn on a little light for me. I'm not sure if it was the empty gas tank or the check engine, but it was something, and it was on, and it was flickering, and I noticed it. And I had to take a long look internally and ask, what am I going to do with it this time? This is a scene from my own life, but I'm sure if I shifted some of the details, maybe it could be a scene from yours. Maybe it's being annoyed with your boss and complaining to your friend again and again and again. Maybe it's having a kind of account, maybe a financial thing where you just kind of take a few dollars here and a few dollars there and maybe expect someone not to notice, but it doesn't feel that great to you. Maybe it's some internal annoyance. When you see someone walk into the room, no one else knows this, but you know this, and you just anxiety just goes up a little bit more. Maybe even your actions change when they're in the room. You notice when they leave, you feel different. This is some of what goes on as we have warning signs go off in our heart if we're paying attention. We notice them. They happen no matter what, but if we pay attention, we notice them. This summer, we looked uh, most of the summer at the work of Paul, the famous church planner. We were identifying marks of maturity in the lives of believers. And more recently, the last few weeks, we've been focusing on rest. What does it mean to embrace a life of rest? You know why it's hard to embrace rest? as a part of maturity. When we finally slow down, all our warning signs go off, or rather they've been going off, but we finally notice them. And that's pretty scary, to slow down, to pause, to reflect, and not be met with peace or quiet, but alarm. This kind of frantic, wait, are you listening? Have you been listening? So much so that we get busy again. We get active, but not to do something about what we're hearing, to do something with the warning signs, but actually to distract from them. 
to distract ourselves again. So those signs are muffled. So we don't hear. So we don't see. So we don't notice. We hope that they'll go away. Except that's not how it works. Blaise Pascal, a famous French philosopher and mathematician, said this. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. No, Pascal isn't one of these like Bay Area converts like from like, you know, Google to something else. Like, as you can see from the picture, dudes from the 1600s. There wasn't Google, there wasn't Netflix, there wasn't this constant distraction. But you know what there was? A human heart in a room, scared to be alone, terrified to hear their own thoughts, wondering, what will I hear? So let's busy myself. Let me go a different way. You can think about the activities of the 1600s. It wasn't Netflix, but it was something else. But same condition. As we dive into this today, as we think more about what the warning signs might be in our own lives, let's come to God in prayer. Because I believe it's only the work of the Holy Spirit that can take these warning signs and actually do something productive and meaningful with them. We all have them, no matter what our belief system is, no matter if we're following Jesus or not. And we can even be aware of them, I think, no matter, uh, kind of depending on what our practices are. But I think the process of transformation I think the Holy Spirit really does that work of not just noticing these warning signs, not just becoming aware of them, but truly committing them to God, committing them to the work of the Holy Spirit so we can experience transformation, ourselves actually being changed more into the likeness of Jesus. So let's pray for God to do that work today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be active and at work and alive in this room that God, even if we're now noticing what some of those warning signs have been, that you would give us calm, you would give us peace, you wouldn't trouble our hearts, but instead you would give us hope and encouragement that you, God, can take those warning signs, take away the fear we might have around them, and give us hope and even desire for what you'll do with them when they're in your hands, when we let you lead. God, would you do that work today? And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a warning sign? I think it's a signal that something isn't right with us, in our relationship with others, in our relationship with God. It's a sign we're running on empty in some part of our lives. And it usually means that we're trusting in ourselves or something else, things that are limited, other than trusting in God and provision, these things that we know are infinite and abundant. Today we'll focus on three warning signs, conflict, uh, complaint, despair, and avoidance. This isn't an exhaustive list, but I think these are common ones to our experience. Complaint, avoidance, and despair. They're ones that are in the story of Scripture all over, including the one that we'll focus on today. Today we're going to be looking at a character who ignores some clear warning signs. But this character actually isn't a person, singular. It's a people, the people of Israel, people that were enslaved by Egypt, worked hard and long, and then were freed by the power of God from their slavery. Now, these freed people end up having some patterns after their freedom, during their freedom, as they've been freed by God. 
and it's this complaint, despair, and avoidance. And now I'm not faulting uh, the Israelites for their complaints, specifically during their enslavement. If you know the story, it's part of their complaint and their groaning that made God aware of their struggles. It says in the scripture that he, people groaned and then he became aware. It's a weird verse. It's a weird passage. It's 400 years. But God was like, I need to do something. I need to move on behalf of my people. So that's not the kind of complaint we're talking about. It's not even when they are uh, struggling on the run to the Red Sea and they kind of let up a complaint there. They're running for their lives. I don't think that's what we're talking about today. When they're dealing with hunger and thirst and they have God give good water instead of bitter water, when they have God give miraculous bread from heaven, I think these are the first signs of them learning to communicate their needs to God and then God miraculously answering them. I don't think that's the kind of complaint we're talking about. But there's something that changes in the narrative. They see miracle after miracle after miracle happen, being freed from the destructive power of Pharaoh, being led through the Red Sea, literally God parting the sea, them experiencing God quench their thirst, feed their hunger, and then lead them in the desert. After all of that, there's still complaint, there's still despair, miracle after miracle after miracle. The, the warning signs for the Israelites, they're still flickering nonstop. It doesn't matter that they're not in the brutal enslavement anymore. They're still experiencing a kind of distress, but they're not going to God with it. And even though we haven't gone through something like what they've gone through, even though I think our times in the wilderness and the desert are different than theirs, I think we can relate to struggling with some of these warning signs in our lives. We're actually going to start at the book of Numbers, two books after the Exodus, the story of them being freed from Egypt. Just to show you, it's a little bit later in the story. They've had encounters and engagement with God. They've seen God's power, God's miracles at work constantly on their behalf. But the people start complaining. This is Numbers 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So let's break this down. The people wail, and even though they're eating miraculous bread from God, from the heavens, that fulfills their needs, they want something back from Egypt. Something if you see here, it says that was at no cost to them. Now, I'm not sure if I'm the only one seeing the irony of this, but y'all were slaves. You were enslaved people. There was a cost. It's called your time, your body, your mental health, your emotional energy, all of these things. But apparently the fish was pretty good. So they're like, I remember when that fish was free. It wasn't free, though. It was your life. It's like someone coming in here, snatching one of us, making us work in their home, but because they're already logged in and subscribed to Netflix, we're like, at least we have Netflix, though. That's not free, though, if you can't leave, if you don't have a choice but they're remembering the goodness of the food and not remember there wasn't anything good about their situation. The people are complaining because they're not in control. The people are complaining because they have limited options. 
And that's often where our complaint begins, our first warning sign, where it starts. There's something we can't change, or maybe we can't easily change, so we decide to do something about it. Not really do something about like bringing it to God, but rather we, again, get active. We get busy. We just chatter. We think somehow that complaint will change our situation, but instead what it changes is us. We change, and for the worse, we become more irritable. We become less grateful, more attached to our lack, more attached to our hardship. That's what our complaint does. It ties us to our situation where we can't see outside of it. We actually only see through it. We only see it. Once again, I have a toddler. I see this up close and personal all the time. These new phrases that are really cute, of course, right? I want it, I want it, I want it. Zoe doesn't tire of repeating herself when she wants something. Recently we taught her no whining. Zoe, no whining. And surprise, surprise, lo and behold, Zoe's, you know, pretty, like, sharp cookie. When Tina and I are talking now, and we're engaged in some conversation, sometimes we hear a new phrase that we're like, that's not exactly how we taught it to you. Mommy, no whining. Daddy, no whining. We're like, dang it, this worked. We taught her something that worked, but now it's against us. Complaint isn't just for toddlers, it's for us too. And again, it's often in situations that we feel like we can't get out of. Maybe situations that we didn't choose. Maybe situations that are genuinely unfortunate. But we're not looking to God for a way out. We're just looking for something to yap about, something to do, thinking it will change. But again, we change, and for the worse. Complaint is common, and it robs us of gratitude. We complain because we have a loss of perspective. We become ungrateful. Remember, they were freed from slavery, actual enslavement, but they lost that perspective. They lost the wonders of what God had done. And so they become ungrateful to this God that's literally providing them bread from heaven. Complaint steals speech. It's meant to be humble prayers of request to God, and it turns them to angry demands at the sky. It's a warning sign that we're living like gods, that we want to make our needs known at any relational cost. We're willing to jeopardize our relationship with others, our relationship with God, relating to God well. And it's funny because we don't see the Israelites model complaint like Moses does. It seems like there's a lot of grace for bringing complaint directly to God, not just yap into the air or to our people or even to our enemies, right? But bringing, grace, bringing complaint directly to God and even maybe being sassy. If you read some Exodus, some Leviticus, some you know, Moses is a little sassy actually. Take Moses' talk with God right after this passage that we just read. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. This is real talk for Moses. Like when I think of this, I think about like the genie. It's like, did you rub my lamp? Did you do this? Like that's kind of like how I imagine Moses being like, what is going on, God? But apparently that kind of complaint 
at least in this exchange, but I think actually we see this throughout the Bible. If it's to God, if it's sincere, it's allowed. Now, maybe we want to try to knock down the dramatic register just a little bit from where Moses is. Moses is pretty high on the drama. Maybe we'll just knock it down. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's your thing. That's okay. But it seems like this too counts as prayer. Making our complaint sincere prayer is one way of dealing with this warning sign. Okay, if I'm getting a warning sign that I'm complaining a lot, let me at least bring it to God then. Let me bring it to God and see what God says. Unfortunately for the people of Israel, despair, our second warning sign, is right around uh, the corner. Instead of bringing complaint to God like Moses does, complaint festers. It deepens. We see it a few chapters later in Numbers 14, just a few chapters later from where we were. God is leading his people to a promised land, and they finally get close to it. And they send out some people to look at what's going on. And they see flowing milk and flowing honey. But they also see some enemies that they've picked up along the way as Israel. And do you know what the thing that they kind of focus on a lot here? They focus on the enemies. Okay, I know there's milk. Okay, you said that, but we saw it. Doesn't matter. Okay, I know there's honey. I know you said that and you promised them. We saw that. But there are these enemies, though, God. And we don't like them. We don't like them one bit. And here's what they say. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is this Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Despair. Another powerful warning sign for us. When we say things like, I can't do that. We'll never go there. This won't happen. If only we had died in Israel. That's despair. See, it starts as a, a grumble. A grumble that we know from Moses and from our own lives, I think, that we can take to the Lord. But it grows as genuine despair. Despair involves a loss of hope. And we become joyless. One marker of despair is imagining futures that actually haven't happened yet or reinterpreting the past without a light of faithfulness. It would have been better if we had died here in the wilderness. Didn't happen and hasn't happened. It would have been better if we died there in Egypt. Didn't happen. There's going to be defeat in the land. Hasn't happened. There's going to be a plunder of our women and children. Hasn't happened. But I bet you couldn't convince the community otherwise. I bet you couldn't. They were settled on something. Their despair had actually decided for them. It made a new false reality. And all of it makes them scheme to actually choose another leader. Another leader from the one that freed them from slavery. That was providing all of their needs, even if they had complaints. To choose another leader to go back to Egypt. The place of their oppression. Despair led them to think that would be a good idea. Despair was given power by them to make decisions in their lives. So let's review for a second. Complaint is a warning sign for us being our own gods who are far from gratitude, far from awe, far from wonder. It changes our mood, it shifts our perspective, and it makes it harder for us to see God's goodness. And despair is a warning sign for us losing the power of joy and hope. We imagine bad futures that haven't happened yet, 
And we begin to plan and make decisions based on those uh, negative futures that actually haven't happened. Instead of a promise that God's actually given the people, a promise that God's actually given us when we slow down to hear from God, either through God's word and scripture, these universal promises that we can hold on to, or maybe specific promises that God's shared with you throughout your life. Maybe even just this short season, God's shared things with you. They have a promised land, a covenant for a good future, but there's still despair. These warning signs have the power of life and death. Life if we heed them, death if we ignore them. Moses, once again, after this passage, talks to God, appeals to God based on God's mercy, God's long-suffering. He gets in God's business and says, but God, you're the one that freed them. Don't make anything bad happen to them. Moses knows that there is some access that he has with God. And one thing that might come up in this narrative is why are the people of Israel and the people and Moses himself, why are they so different? And that speaks to our last warning sign, avoidance. Back in Exodus, we see a short but critical moment after God speaks out the Ten Commandments, this holy law from God. It's on this mountain where Moses is, he's away from the people, and there's thunder and there's lightning, and it's a spectacular sight. And the people take that moment of this law that's supposed to be a law of life for them to say, or to, uh, to basically say, we don't want to actually talk to God. Like, Moses, you do that work for us. Like, this kind of thunder, lightning, mountain moment might be cool in the movie, it's going to happen later, but like, it's not cool right now, stop. We don't want to talk to you. Moses, just do that work. And we see this next verse in Exodus. This is back a few books before, 2021. I think this just sums up what's been happening. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The difference seems to be Moses' willingness to engage God, whatever the situation, versus the people's complete fear of who God is, of God's power, of God's presence, of God's glory. They don't want it. They want things from God to be freed from enslavement. They want things from God, food, bread in the desert, water to quench their thirst. They want things from God, safety, and a place where it seems like enemies are all around. But you know who they don't want? They don't seem to actually want God. But Moses wants engagement. He wants access. He wants leadership from God. He actually doesn't really want to be the leader. He wants God to be the leader. It says in the scripture that Moses is the most humble person to walk the face of the earth in that time. He just wanted God's leadership. He didn't avoid God. Avoidance involves a loss of relationship. It involves us becoming isolated from others, other people, and I think crucially also God. It's eventually avoidance that leads the people of God to make an image forged in gold, just days after God frees them. This is in the story of Exodus after this moment where they say, we're going to actually just distance ourselves from God. They're waiting for Moses to come down. They're waiting for this person they just said, he's going to, you know, basically communicate for us. So they're, they're waiting. I don't think they like that they had to wait that much. Any of us like that? They, they don't like that they had to wait now. They, they said, we don't want access. We just want this guy to speak. But now that he's taking a long time, what are we going to do? So like, well, we have a good idea. Let's get all our jewelry. Let's burn it down. Let's make a golden calf. A calf would be something that was sacrificed to God. Let's say, let's make that by our own hands. And then let's worship this God. What are they terrified of? A God that they can't predict, that they don't really know. 
that they're wondering, is he out there? What do they want and eventually get? A God of their own making, made like the gods of the time, with the gold of their own jewelry, a safe God, a controlled God, less free than real cattle. That's what they want, and they get that. They're avoiding God. They're avoiding who he is, his power, his purposes. And in avoiding God, they find not just an absence of God, but they actually find idols. Not just find, they they make idols. In their absence of God, they make new gods. And while some of us may escape uh, kind of like a tendency to like golden jewelry or maybe fancy suits, I think most of us, in our avoidance, we make gods out of other things. Maybe it's our knowledge, our efficiency, our planning, our distractions, our base desires, anything and everything to avoid the God who allows us to receive warning signs in his mercy. We have these three things, complaint, despair, avoidance, warning signs. Have you all ever encountered any of these? Have you encountered any lately? Have you brought them to God in times of rest and slowness? Maybe not just random times of rest and slowness, but deliberate ones, ones that you chose to become aware of what God's been doing, to become aware of these warning signs that you regularly, that we regularly experience. Or they buried under your work, under your rash decisions, under your constant distractions. That's something that happens to all of us. And I think in particular, in this season, in this time of years, August becomes September, it actually represents something interesting in New Haven. It's almost like a second new year for us. And it's not that all of us are students, that's not true, that everyone in this place is a student, that's not true, but it's, I think, undeniable that this place changes when students show up for college, when school buses start just littering the town again, when parents and teachers change rhythms and exchange our summer season of natural slowness with the chaos of late August and September in New Haven. Warning signs aren't easy to listen to in this time of transition. In fact, in this season, we can make really good excuses for why we don't listen to them, why we didn't have time to, why there was just more stuff going on. We can avoid the good internal work that yields gratitude, hope, and joy, and increased connection and relationship. But we avoid that work to our detriment. And we do so, honestly, I think I've noticed this in ways that once things start up, that honestly make us long again for the summer. We're like longing for the summer, like September 15th. Oh, I just can't wait. It's like, that was weird. Like, we didn't cherish it. We didn't enjoy it. We're just like, summer again. Because we're longing for a break again. Not thinking it can come from the way our lives are set up. We've actually forged our schedules, our priorities, the way we use our time, our communities, who we're around in a place of usual stress, complaint, and despair. Like we decide what we're doing the whole year, like in that place, like that place of like busyness and activity where, okay, here's like the best time to decide like what I'm about this year. It's not the best time. It could become become a better time, but usually it's not a good time for us actually. And I can think about this in my own life. These transitions, oftentimes these important transitions have happened in this season, like actually this season of time. Like me being an 18-year-old and coming to New Haven, 
coming to become a Yale student, and basically caring way more about what people think about me, how I'm going to fit in, than thinking, is God starting a 15-year-plus journey in New Haven? Maybe like the Spirit speak. oh, no, I was not hearing that Spirit. I was hearing a lot of other Spirits, but not that one that could have whispered, this is going to be a city that you're going to be in for a while. You might want to build a foundation here. Didn't hear that. Was stuck in other things. At age 22, starting Yale Divinity School, more concerned with, okay, how am I going to make money? I'm confused about this. Why did I do this again? There's this girl named Tina. I like her. She made a decision to date me. We're dating, but like, is this going to work? What church community could I even find a home in? I actually like had decided to go to the school, right, to become a minister of some sort. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about all the questions that I couldn't answer and focusing on those things, as opposed to maybe there's some promise and even just saying yes to going to this school and some of the hopes that I had for it. Three years later, I moved into Kensington, a rough neighborhood of our city. I began working two ministry jobs, being a pastor at ECV and a campus pastor. And yeah, I actually did get married to Tina, so that happened then too. Just like one other thing to add on to the transitions. And I was more steadied to God in the outset of that, but I began regularly doing a practice, kind of a new marital practice of like coming home and complaining. I don't know, maybe I did that to God, I just didn't realize, but like all of a sudden I had a person, I was like, oh, like, Tina, you need to hear all of this. She did not need to hear all of that. It was just complaint. But I thought maybe that would be a good thing to start off our marriage. It wasn't at all. And even when I became lead pastor five years ago, I quickly got into a despair mode after when three weeks officially in the role, we got notice from the church that we were renting from that we could no longer rent. And in fact, we had to move in less than a month. And I was like, God, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Didn't you know I was going to be lead pastor? Didn't, couldn't you have told the person like at the church, like, now, really? I went into despair mode real quick, not thinking, well, maybe because God was doing something in my life, God actually had a plan for this. Maybe it's even part of the purpose of what's going on. This time of transition for me, this August into September time, has always been a time for me to either start bad patterns or break them. Slowly, year after year, I began to take the hint. Even what I did this past time, I'm like, let me just take some time off before this time starts. That was a good thing to do. I avoided some things. Zoe's probably very thankful for that. I will give her gummy bears later if Tina allows me. Slowly, year after year, I begin to take the hint. I need to pay attention to these warning signs going on in my heart to invite God to dialogue with me about the warning signs I'm noticing to build a foundation that can last for more than just an academic year and call that success, but a foundation that can last for a lifetime to build something that actually can last. This is the time to build something that will bend, not buckle, under the pressure of a new job. It's a time to build a kind of joy that outlasts the sadness of leaving loved ones or a city that you cared about a lot without giving into the work of despair, being here in a new city. It's a time to grow a culture of gratitude and awe instead of complaining about the new house, maybe the family transition, or even the slow and steady work you've been doing for a while that you actually prayed for in another season, but now it's like your burden and your complaint. That ever happened to anyone? You prayed for it, and then it's like, I hate this, this is awful. It's like, you actually prayed for it. You heard from God about it. But just because you don't like it now, that's your subject of complaint. I'm just preaching to myself here in case you're wondering. <laughs> for different things in my life. This is the time to invest in listening to the warning signs. The second new year is a time to build something that can last. That's informed by the warning signs. 
instead of just driven by them and their demands, their, their urgency. So will we pay attention or not? I actually want to close by looking at someone, Jesus, who turns this concept all upside down. Jesus often does that. I'm going to look at his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as we close, that speaks to our human tendency to avoid warning signs. Like, I don't think we're really set up to, like, kind of, uh, to pay attention to these warning signs. But often what we do is we kind of just do behavior control. We avoid like, the big bad things in our lives, the things we know we'd get in trouble for, the things that kind of wouldn't work on our job or maybe in our relationships. We just avoid those things but not actually paying attention to the warning signs that could transform our lives from the inside out. We think we're good if we kind of don't get caught in some things. We don't need to grow in maturity or rest and slowness, we think. We don't have to pay special attention to times of transition. We simply manage our lives and think about the sins that would get us in trouble, whether that's in our marriage relationships, in our friendships, at work, and we just avoid those. We settle for a functional life instead of a transformed life. And Jesus has some words about that, as you might imagine. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Maybe this one that comes next in the sermon. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Strong words from Jesus, who's saying there's things that you might be avoiding, things that maybe you can avoid, or at least you can let other people think that you're avoiding them. But I'm going to actually say, let's go to the warning signs of these things. Not just the action of a big, bad, hairy sin, but the warning signs, the seed of them. And what if I say to you, at that point, can you cut it out? At that point, can you let my love, my mercy, my goodness change things? At that point, can you begin to think that this is serious? You know, Jesus wants to do something in our lives. He wants to actually turn our warning sign into a crisis for our sake. Through his mercy, he wants to turn our warning signs into a crisis for our own transformation. He doesn't want us to skate by. Like that's often sometimes, honestly, my prayer and our prayers, I think, let me just get, God, can I just, I, don't, I just don't want that right now. Can we just, can I just kind of scoot? And God's like, I love you too much to let that happen. I'm actually okay with you getting caught for your transformation. And I would love it even better if you caught yourself and then you told that to me. He wants us to turn these warning signs into crises. That's part of the mercy of them. You can urgently act when you complain by making a daily practice of gratitude and being serious about that. You can rush to regular rhythms of celebration with friends in a time where you know you're despairing. And you also know you have friends that would care, that care about you and that would help you, but you're just not reaching out for some reason. You can, without haste, set regular time to be with God in a season where you know you're struggling with avoiding God. You can even ask a friend, hey, can you just check in with me? I know I need to do this. Please just 
Keep me accountable to that. This is the work of rest. This is the work of maturity. This is the work of embracing rest and embracing maturity. It involves looking at the empty gaslight while you're on the road with somewhere to go, probably late, and deciding to pull in and refuel. Doing some research for this talk, and some gearheads probably already know this, it's not good to drive on empty. That's not good for your car. But we try to avoid the warning signs a lot, and we do long-term damage to our car. Sometimes we put ourselves in short-term risk because of our actions. We need to decide that we want to, we desire to have uh, life more in the rhythms of God, the natural rhythms of God, that God says actually will be good for us. That's what he promises to us. These are the habits of Jesus who without sin still modeled for us what to do when we fall into patterns of sin, taking time that's quiet to be with God, gathering community around us for meals and friendship, hearing the words of life, the words of God, and having it plant seeds in us. God says, actually, let me lead this crisis part. Like, we need to know, turn your warning sign into a crisis. We also need to know that Jesus would like to, like, deal with that crisis. I know me in a crisis. I'm like, yes, I want to turn my warning sign into a crisis, but I actually don't want to be in charge of that crisis response team. That wouldn't be good for me. Let's let Jesus deal with that. He's happy to do that work. He's happy to help us with that. When you get time to be alone with your thoughts this week, what will you do? You're in a room by yourself. Maybe your phone's out. Maybe a computer's open. Maybe a newspaper is right there. What will you do? What will your choices be? What's happening in your life? Does that shape what you'll do? You know, I'm experiencing some warning signs. I, I know I need to get with God, to bring those up to God. Maybe you don't know what you think about God, so you're like, I'm actually not sure how I feel like talking to like this invisible God about these real things in my life. That's an okay place to be. Maybe you've been feeling some wind recently in your spiritual life. You're like, okay, I think I'm fine though. Maybe I'm okay. What if we decided, just as a kind of practice, maybe even as a risk together, this week just to pay attention? Are we even just a little bit restless when we get that time where we know we could just maybe find the news again, scroll through, maybe Instagram, Maybe it's something else, just calling someone, talking to someone. Maybe we could just take even five minutes, even just once this week, and say, let's just maybe take a warning sign that we've recognized or maybe that we even think maybe is happening and just bring it to God and see what will happen. If we'll experience some of this mercy of God that I think is available for us. Let's engage with God. Let's even be sassy in our prayers if we need that. Even if we want that, or just say, let's try that. Moses was sassy, let's see if I can be sassy too. I think that's okay. Let's be grateful and in awe that we don't need to be driven by these warnings, but we can be under the leadership of God. And let's have hope that our very awareness of a warning sign, our very awareness of it means that God's at work in us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to do even more than make us aware, but to lead us through these things over and over and over again. I think that's the salvation, the rescue of God. Let's make these warning signs actually a crisis and let Jesus be the leader of that. We're going to go to three quick reflections, and people on the worship team can come up. The first is, what do you complain about? Got a knowing chuckle? What do you complain about? Even just take a little uh, internal review. The last week, what did you complain about? And ask the Spirit for insight about why that thing triggers your complaint. 
If you are new to this in prayer and even asking the Spirit, it's as simple as saying, Holy Spirit, I ask you, just as I sit here in my mind's eye or in the quiet of my heart, would you speak to me about what I've been complaining about? Even if you've never prayed a prayer like that, I think God listens to them, and they don't have to be complicated. It's simply asking God for help. And again, if you don't believe in God, if that's something you're struggling with, you can still pray. You can still ask. God loves to respond to those kinds of prayers. Second thing is, do you have a practice of silence? Maybe a practice of gratitude, wonder, or regular dialogue with God? Not all of those things, but do you have any of those things? And reflect on how this practice could cause a breakthrough where you currently experience a warning sign. So if you're struggling with despair, do you have a practice that actually would help you with despair? Maybe that getting together with friends, maybe celebration. Think about, is there a practice that actually lines up with what you're experiencing? And the last one, during worship, reflect on where current warning signs are driving you towards relationship with Jesus. Again, I think all these warning signs are meant to move us towards Jesus. So are there any that you realize are doing that? They're bringing you to God. Before I introduce communion and what we're going to do for the rest of our time, I just want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, I believe you're moving in our hearts. You're moving around the room. You have access, actually, Holy Spirit, to our thoughts, to our hearts. That can seem scary, but you're good. So it's actually good news for us. Holy Spirit, would you be at work helping us become aware of warning signs, helping us become aware that you actually want to do things through them, and that you're working through your mercy for our good. We pray that in Jesus' name.